1: 18 plus Hi everybody and a very pleasant good evening to you wherever you may be. Those are the words with which Vince Scully, widely regarded as the greatest broadcaster in the history of sports, opened every Dodgers game. I wish they applied to this evening but in fact it's actually a very sad evening as news just broke that Mr. Scully, as beloved a figure as any in the city of Los Angeles, died tonight at the age of 94. Thank you for tuning in to the 455th episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and I've decided to share on this episode the audio of an interview that I was privileged to conduct with Mr. Scully in the Dodgers Press Box back in the summer of 2014 for a profile which then ran in The Hollywood Reporter. At the time, Scully was 86 and in his 65th season as the voice of the Dodgers. He would occupy that role for two more seasons before retiring. Scully, who grew up a fan of the now-defunct New York Giants baseball team, began calling Dodgers games in 1950 at the age of just 22, while the team still played in Brooklyn at Ebbets Field. He moved with them to Los Angeles in 1958 and was instrumental in helping the team find a following in its new city. Initially at the cavernous Los Angeles Memorial Coliseum, to which fans would bring transistor radios in order to hear Scully describe the faraway action, and then from 1962 until 2016 at Dodger Stadium in Chavez Ravine. His run of 67 seasons with the Dodgers organization made him the broadcaster with the longest tenure with a single team in the history of professional sports. Scully, who called games for not only the Dodgers, but also in some years for other teams during the postseason, covered players spanning from Jackie Robinson to Clayton Kershaw. He was behind the mic for 18 no-hitters and three of the 23 perfect games in the history of Major League Baseball, including Don Larson's in 1956, which was the only one to occur during a World Series game. He broadcast 12 All-Star games and 25 World Series Not World Series games, but World Series series. His was the voice that millions heard when Hank Aaron hit his record-breaking 715th home run in 1974, when a ground ball from Mookie Wilson rolled between Bill Buckner's legs during the 1986 World Series, and when Dodgers player Kirk Gibson slugged his unlikely pinch-hit home run in the 1988 World Series. As knowledgeable, prepared, and eloquent a person as any to ever practice his profession— Scully, after whom the Dodgers press box was named in 2001 and the main road to Dodger Stadium was renamed in 2016, was inducted into the American Sportscasters Association's Hall of Fame in 1992 and the National Radio Hall of Fame in 1995, received the National Baseball Hall of Fame's Ford Frick Award in 1982 and a Lifetime Achievement Emmy Award in 1995. In 2014, was presented by Major League Baseball Commissioner Bud Selig with the Commissioner's Historic Achievement Award, becoming only its 14th recipient and only its second non-player recipient. And in 2016, was presented by President Barack Obama with America's highest civilian honor, the Presidential Medal of Freedom. The official citation for that honor read, quote, "...with a voice that transcended a sport and transformed a profession," Vince Scully narrated America's pastime for generations of fans. Known to millions as the soundtrack of Summer, he found time to teach us about life and love while chronicling routine plays and historic heroics. In victory and in defeat, his colorful accounts reverberated through the bleachers, across the airwaves, and into our homes and imaginations. He is an American treasure and a beloved storyteller. And our country's gratitude for Vince Scully is as profound as is his love for the game, close quote. And as I wrote in 2014, quote, getting to meet Vin Scully is like getting to meet the Wizard of Oz. He's got a mighty voice, he seems to be all-knowing, and he sits in a booth high above us mere mortals. The biggest difference, though, as this reporter discovered in the course of working on this story, is that Scully is actually as impressive as advertised, close quote. And so without further ado, let's go to that conversation. So just to begin with, I, yeah. I've gone and done, I've read articles about you going back to the beginning, and that's actually one of the ways I came across that uh, piece. And oh, I, that's great. One of the things I read was that as a kid, I, and even then at Fordham, I understand you, you played baseball, but also uh, maybe sometimes spoke to yourself or spoke aloud commentating Can you talk about, you know, what were the roots of your interest in the game and in in broadcasting?
0: Well, originally, I was about eight years old when it first manifested itself. Uh, I wrote a composition for the nuns asking, you know, what you want to be when you grow up. And the boys wanted to be doctors and lawyers and firemen and policemen. And uh, the girls wanted to be nurses, and uh, ballet dancers, and all of the above. And here's this little red-headed kid, who, who's about eight, who said, I want to be a sports announcer. And the reason was, originally, uh, we had a big old four-legged radio in the living room with a cross piece at the bottom. And I would take a pillow and maybe some saltine crackers and a glass of milk, and I would literally crawl under the radio so that my head was directly under the speaker of the radio. And in those days, uh, probably the only sports would be a college football game on a Saturday afternoon. So I would look forward to that. Even though, A, I really didn't know football. I didn't know the rules. Uh, number two, might have been Tennessee, Alabama. I had no idea who was playing. But the one thing that captured my imagination was the roar of the crowd. I fell in love with the roar of the crowd. Mm -hmm. So in the beginning, I guess, the germ began, wow, I'd love to be there. And then after I kept doing it, it all of a sudden was, I'd kind of like to be the guy doing it. (laughs) And so that kind of channeled me into that direction. And I don't really have a trademark, I don't think, in this business. But if I did have, it would be the fact that I try to call the play as quickly and accurately as I can, and then shut up, <laughs> because I'm enjoying, like the eight-year-old kid, the roar of the crowd. And I guess I've held records in silence, letting the crowd roar, whether it was Henry Aaron's home run or Kurt Gibson's, but I always stop because i just love to hear the roar so that's really how it started and where we're winding up plus uh, i forget what world series it was but uh, a tv columnist wrote what happened was someone hit a home run and typical of the network they show it again and i thought well why do i want to say home run again we've just called it and here it is and during the uh, column this man wrote that perhaps Vin Scully made his greatest contribution (laughs) by saying nothing and I really took that as a compliment I thought you know that's right when the moment happens the best I can do is be quiet Mm -hmm. and let because the roar of the crowd will take place over any superlatives that you might possibly come up with now one of the things that kind of amazed me to
1: read was that you had a stutter as a child is that true? no not no, was there something with the left hand or no no no.
0: You it's a story.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, what happened was I am and was yeah. still uh, left-handed, uh-huh. and uh, I went to grammar school. We had the nuns, and way back when, I think they honestly thought that the left hand was the devil's hand. Mm-hmm. I really think so. So, and anyone who went to school around that time found out if they were left-handed. So, every time I used my left hand, I would get hit by a ruler. And then if I was absolutely obstinate, I refused to try my right hand, they would turn the ruler to the edge. Now they'd break the skin. And one night at dinner, whatever it was, passing some bread, and my mother saw that bloodied hand. And she was probably 99% correct if she thought I had done something to be punished. (laughs) But in this particular instance, no. And I said to him, no, no, Mom, not not this time. They just keep beating me up for using my left hand. And the nice part to me of the story, we had a wonderful Jewish doctor, family doctor, Dr. Ben Henry Rose, God rest his soul. And Dr. Rose wrote a letter to the nuns. And in the letter, he said, and dear sisters, you know, if you try to force this boy to write and be right-handed, he might very well stutter. That's where that came from. And then the last line of his letter was, and besides, dear sisters, why do you wish to change God's work? Well, that was a (laughs) grand slam home run. And if you remember, although they threw it away, uh, remember the King's Speech, wonderful movie? I had read about King George VI 40 years ago because being left-handed, I was in college and I was intrigued by the story. The true story about him was the man who wrote the book about it was in charge of the BBC taking King George's speeches during World War II, editing the stuttering, and then putting the speech on the BBC. And he kept doing this. That was his job. And after a while, he started to think, well, if stuttering is the sign of frustration, what in the world does the king of the British Empire have to be frustrated about? Turned out he was left-handed, forced to be right-handed. So when I went to the movie, I knew all that, and I was waiting because I came close to it. Sure. There was one line in the movie, and they kind of threw it away. Amazing. So that's... No, I didn't stutter. Thanks to Dr. Rose, (laughs) I didn't stutter. Uh,
1: Now, it sounds to me like one of the most influential people in your life has to have been Red Barber, and I just wonder... uh, When you two, how you two first met. Uh, I I know there's an interesting story around this. And just why it is that you think he championed you. Um,
0: First of all, I worked for CBS in Washington when I graduated. And uh, I worked, I was a summer replacement announcer. So as each announcer went on vacation, I assumed all of his duties. So it was a marvelous experience. Also, it's a 50,000-watt station. So I went from, not even the minors, from amateur on college to the major leagues in broadcasting. So that was quite a jump. And surprise of all, into October, I was finished. They had all had their anniversaries or whatever the holidays were, and also the vacations. And the manager said, we would love to hire you permanently in February. Wow, I thought, that's great. And going back to New York, he gave me some letters of introduction to several people at CBS in New York, one of whom was the head of news. I think his name was Ted Church. Lovely man. We talked for a good 10, 15 minutes. And eventually sports came up. And as soon as I mentioned, yes, I had done some sports and I played sports, that was a chance for him to lateral me. So he lateraled me very nicely to Red Barber. When I went to see Red, it was one of those stories, he was putting his hat and coat on because it was October late, and he said, I'm sorry my wife is circling the block, Uh, leave your name, etc. There was an emergency. CBS had a game, a show on Saturday, four games. And they would bounce from one game to the other, one game back and forth, and eventually The games would be decided early, and you might wind up with one really good game. So one of the announcers fell ill, and uh, I came home one night, and my wonderful Irish red-haired mother said to me, oh, Vinnie, you'll never guess who called, and I said, no, Mom, who? And she said, Red Skelton. I said, no, I don't think so, (laughs) but could it be Red Barber? Yes, I went to see Red. He had already checked this was typical of Red. He had called Fordham. He had called the athletic director. He called WTOP where I had worked all summer. And apparently I passed all of those investigations. (laughs) And they sent me to Boston to do a football game, BU Maryland, at the same time in the same city Fordham University was playing Boston College. And at that stage of my young life, I was probably more interested in the dance after the Fordham-BC game than, and I also thought that I'm working for CBS, so I'll have this glorious glass-enclosed booth, so why do I need a hat and gloves and a coat? So I went to the ballpark, Fenway Park. Went to the roof of Fenway Park. There was no glass-in-closed <laughs> booth. There was a poor engineer huddled in the cold with a card table, all of his gear on the table, and a microphone and 50 yards of cable. And that was my debut doing a football game on CBS. So let's be very, very generous with my work. I was freezing. I thought my jaw was frozen. Um, and we'll say that I did a ordinary job at best Mm -hmm. well at no time did I ever mention anything except the game that I was doing well Monday red got a phone call I guess it was from someone at BC apologizing uh, what they had put me through and by the way that game turned out to be a great game all the other games fell by the wayside so I was the one carrying the ball Mm -hmm. that Saturday afternoon so red was so impressed not so much of the job that I did, but the fact that I never mentioned or complained about the working conditions. And I will always remember, he said, well, don't worry, you'll have a nice booth next week, you're doing Harvard-Yale. That's great. So that was big. And then after that, the football season was over, and Red said, good luck to you in Washington, and all that stuff, I said, thank you very much, and I felt at least I had accomplished something. And then, out of the blue, I get another call from Red. And Ernie Harwell switched from the Dodgers to the Giants. There was an opening in Brooklyn. Red thought about who should fill it. And as he told me later, he thought, I don't want to get a thoroughly experienced professional sports announcer who might get his nose out of joint because he's only going to do an inning here or an inning there. What about that redheaded kid? Maybe I could meld him and mold him and shape him and so they took me to Florida and on a one month's option and that's uh, 65 years (laughs) and as far as the association was um, Red was like a father in two ways number one he was my severest critic but two because he wanted me to succeed like a father would with a son. And many, many years later, maybe also because I had red hair, uh, he wrote that I might have been the son he, he might That's have right. had. That's he great. had a daughter, but no son. So those are complicated answers to your question. No, it's great. And
1: uh, so that first season, you, you uh, arrive at Ebbets, uh, hmm. and I wonder for you, do you remember if you can take yourself back to that
0: maybe even the first day. What, what, what was going through your... your well, um, first of all, I had never been to Ebbets Field, and I was living up near the George Washington Bridge in Washington Heights. So I had to really get directions uh, to find myself at Ebbets Field. And I was completely overwhelmed. I mean, I'm looking around, here's this kid who played stickball in the streets besides baseball at Fordham, but uh, I was always playing ball. And now, here I am, with Gil Hodges, Jackie Robinson, Pee Wee Reese, Roy Campanella, Duke Snyder, I mean, it was overwhelming. So all I tried to do is stay out of the way, uh, not say anything unless somebody asked me. And uh, when I went on the air, uh, it was like, I didn't try to broadcast. What I tried to do is not make a mistake. Mm -hmm. So that's a different way. But uh, I had two wonderful people, and the relationship in the booth was truly remarkable. I don't think there'll ever be anything quite like that because you had the father image, that was Red, the older brother or son was a fellow named Connie Desmond who was a wonderful announcer in his own right, and then the kid. And that's the way apparently it came out on the air. And if Red uh, criticized me after the game, and then Connie would be the older brother saying, hey, that's okay, you know, uh, you were fine, you know, we'll get better next day, tomorrow, yeah. you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah. So it was a great relationship, and that's how it started off. Wonderful. You know. uh, out of curiosity, when
1: along the line did you uh, begin using your famous greeting
0: that you open your shows with? You know, uh, uh, first of all, when, when you start broadcasting, and and we're in New York now, so you had the great Mel Allen, the great Red Barber, the great Russ Hodges, you had also Kurt Gowdy, we had a, a whole bunch of fine announcers, and Red gave me a bit of advice. And here I am, wide-eyed, 22 years old, and uh, Red said to me, young man, uh, remember what you, you bring into the broadcasting booth, something that no one else in the world can bring. Well, I was Popeye, (laughs) I could not believe that. I said, what? And he said, yourself. There's no one else in the world quite like you. And so he said, don't listen to other announcers. If you do, you might subconsciously pick up intonations or even expressions or what have you. So I took his advice. Now, sure, I could have learned a lot from listening to the others, but I never did. And uh, so in this way, what you have heard all my life has been me uh, and no one else. But even it took a while before you heard me. Uh, I probably didn't really develop. I did the 53 World Series. So at the time I was, uh, well, in October of 53, I would be 25 and uh, overwhelmed, but I worked with Mel Allen, and this was part of the relationship that meant so much to me. Uh, Mel said to me before game one, I met your boss, and that was Walter O'Malley. And he said, uh, he said, Walter said to me, Mel, take good care of my boy. And that made me feel so good, first that Mr. O'Malley would think that way, and Mel, I felt, yeah, he would take care of me. and." Uh, So that's how it started, but uh, the expression really happened in California. I didn't really um, become me on the air. You know that expression, which is a good one, know thyself. Uh, It took me quite a while to allow myself to come out on the air, uh, unencumbered by the fear of committing an error of some kind or other. So I had done the 55 World Series. The Dodgers won that one, and they were on the top of the world. And then I did 56, and came out here. And with the transistor radio and the 59 World Series, now suddenly this fella named Scully started to come out. But I don't believe I began the broadcast until about 15 years ago, maybe. And now it started where I wish everybody a very pleasant whatever, you know. Yeah, (laughs) that's great. Now, uh, because
1: a lot of this is going to revolve around the city of L.A., this issue that we're working on, I'm very curious to know, what was your feeling when you learned that the team was coming out here and you now had this decision to make about whether or not to come with the team out west? Uh, And so, first of all, your thoughts about that move and then also your Uh, immediate impressions of los angeles
0: well first of all they announced they're going to move and then they told me i was going with them so at the moment of the announcement it was bittersweet i had that feeling i'm leaving everything that i've known i'm leaving my family i'm leaving my college i'm leaving everybody i've ever known in this world going out to california i had only been out here once when i was in the navy and uh However, I was thrilled that I had a job because what I found out later on, a lot of the people out here uh, were trying to get Mr. O'Malley to hire West Coast announcers, not bring. But Mr. O'Malley was an amazing man as far as loyalty is concerned. And because he felt that Jerry and I were loyal, uh, he said, no, I'm bringing my men with me. So we came out here. And uh, at first, It's like uh, there's no there there, Gertrude Stein. (laughs) Uh, I wasn't quite sure where exactly Los Angeles was, 460 square miles, whatever it is. Uh, But after a while, uh, going to the Coliseum, the single greatest thing that helped was the transistor radio. Uh, It happened for me, it could have happened to anybody else. I was just fortunate enough. And that's what opened the doors. Uh, It built a relationship. And that's when I changed. That's when I really started to talk to the fans as opposed to broadcasting the game. Mm-hmm. So that's when it really began to change, 1958. And because of
1: that relationship, I think you you probably, uh, I, I love to hear you talk about this, but I think there's a sense among people who you've never met that they really know you and that oh, you're yeah. a friend. And so I wonder, again, for, for you just being in L.A. now after all these years since the move, uh, what's it like to be Vin Scully in L.A. and go shopping or go to a restaurant or whatever? Do you feel that people, uh, oh, people yes. interact with you? But,
0: but it's an overwhelming feeling uh, of how they care for me, mm-hmm. which causes me to have an overwhelming feeling, thank God. Mm-hmm. I mean, I have been so fortunate and blessed that uh, I know that whatever I have that has helped me get along with people on here, I could lose it as soon as I walk out this door. And so I'm eternally grateful to God, and uh, I, I thank the people for uh, putting up with me for all these years. You know, it's been great. And, and for you, when you're out and about, what, I guess one of the things people were
1: curious to know, I, we pulled the office a little bit, What you know, what, what are your, when you're not at the ballpark, what do you, where do you like to be? What are your places in LA that you like to go?
0: Well, uh, I'd just as soon be home yeah. as anywhere. I mean, I really do like that. I like to be home. Uh, I'm a member of the Bel Air Country Club. I've been a member over 40 years. Uh, I don't get over there much now. Yeah. Maybe in the fall, I'll try to pick up the golf clubs again, but I haven't played much at yeah. all. And those are the two most famous places. Uh, I'm very low key off the air, very much so. Uh, my wife complains sometimes that I'm too quiet at home. Uh, bless her heart. But uh, is no. she a
1: baseball fan, man? Yes, she is.
0: i very knowledgeable yeah. and uh, uh, will come out to the ballpark and uh, enjoy every minute of it. And she knows what's going on. So uh, yeah, that makes it ideal. Is it correct that about 50 years ago,
1: the Yankees, which is the team I grew up uh, rooting for as a from somebody from Connecticut, is it true that they? Uh, tried to essentially recruit you from L.A.?
0: First of all, the Yankees, no. Mm -hmm. Uh, The only story, which is a true story, we were going to New York, so that would be 1962, when the Mets first came into being. And a friend of mine in the advertising business, who had been very involved with Dodger broadcast, very much, he called me and said, let's have lunch. And I met him, and we had lunch, and in the course of the luncheon, He said, have you ever thought about coming back to New York? And I said, no, not really, why? And he said, well, I'm pretty sure the Yankees would love to have you. Uh, Mel was having some mental problems, I think actually a physical problem. I think he had fallen in a bathroom on the road. Uh, Beautiful guy, but anyway, They were thinking of bringing somebody over to pick up for whenever his time was that he was going to pack it in. So the only discussion was with my friend Jim. And I said, you know, Jim, not really. I said, we've been out in LA now since 58. And I feel so close to the O'Malley family. I mean, I love them, Walter and his wife Kay and Peter and Terry, that I almost felt like a member of their family. And I thought, no, I could never leave them. Mm -hmm. And I've always had that feeling. I could never leave them Mm -hmm. at all. So, yes, it wasn't the Yankees calling me saying, we want you to. It was a feeler coming from an advertising agency man. And that was the best that we could do with the story. I see. Um,
1: This is just more logistical, but like... what do you see as your main responsibility as, as a broadcaster?
0: Oh, to be accurate. Mm-hmm. Accurate and fair. And the most important thing you can get back from the fans is belief. Mm-hmm. They believe that A, you are accurate, and B, you're honest. Uh, so that I think it's true. If I say a Dodger has just made a great play, I hope that the reaction is, okay, I believe Scully, he must have made a great play, as opposed to, uh, oh, that guy, everything the Dodgers do is a great play. Uh, that, that, to me, is, is a big difference. But it all begins with accuracy, because from accuracy comes trust. From trust comes belief. You know? and, and to that point, I just
1: think that people, there, there are two words
0: from all those
1: articles that I went back and read, in addition to just knowing you as a, as a listener, that always come up. Uh, informed and eloquent the people love how much you know going into the game and how well you share that knowledge. Sometimes. Well, I, I, I think <laughs> more than sometimes. You know, I'm okay.
0: like everybody else in this business, I'm sure. Uh, I'm a severe critic and there are plenty of nights I'll go home saying, Darn, I wish I had said this or I, I should never have said that or, you know, but, but that's all part of the business. Yeah,
1: but I think even on your worst day you're better than better than but the question I guess in that statement there there is a and I'll and I'll wrap uh, yeah, I have with to. last yeah that was just um, with that, how do, how do you prepare? Is it a, has that evolved over the years where there's now the internet, there's now uh, other things, and then in terms of the eloquence, uh, where you know where, and the and the vocabulary, the descriptive vocabulary, where's that from?
0: I don't know, <laughs> except uh, a reasonable college education and reading several <laughs> books. Uh, at a very young age, I kissed the Blarney Stone in Ireland, so perhaps <laughs> that You know, maybe. Um, as far as the preparation goes, believe it or not, it's all year long. Uh, in that way, I might pick up a magazine and there's an article about a player, a manager, whoops, I'll tear that out, and if it's with the Cardinals, I'll put it in a Cardinal file or whatever. And then when we're playing that particular team, I take out that file because I have uh, accumulated a few bits and pieces, and then as you mentioned, the internet and everything else, you put it all together, you get to the ballpark uh, by 3.30 for a 7.10 game, You carefully go over your ad-libs, and you're ready to go on the air, you hope, you hope. Well, I hope hope we get many, many more seasons. God bless your heart. Thank Thank you so 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 very much, Scott. This is wishing you a very pleasant good afternoon, wherever you may be.
1: Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that, and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or your podcast app, and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. Until next time, thanks for joining us.